0: I'm sports attorney Luke Fedlum, and welcome to the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. Each conversation, we focus on sharing information and having conversations around how athletes can best educate and protect themselves or their life outside of their sports. I'm Luke Fedlum, the host of the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast and the head of sports law at Porter Wright. And I am
1: Jay Levine, the editor of the Antitrust Law Source podcast, and I am the co-chair of our Antitrust and uh, Consumer Protection Group.
0: And we are here today doing this joint podcast because there are times in the sports law world where things just overlap and come together. And uh, this week has been one of those times. And so we had a decision come out of the Supreme Court of the United States this week in the case of NCAA versus Alston. And this case, it deals with sports law, it deals with antitrust, and obviously in the midst of all that's going on in college sports, What a great opportunity for us to have some in-depth conversation of what the actual decision says, what it means for the NCAA, what it means for student-athletes, but also, just as importantly, what does it mean going forward, and how might it impact college sports. So, Jay and I wanted to get together, have this conversation today, and uh, dig into it a little bit more. So, with that, I think the best place to start is, as they say, at the beginning. So, Jay, do you want to just maybe give a little bit of an overview of what the case was and kind of what the what the decision of the court was? Sure. So uh, this
1: case um, is actually a, a few different cases put together and started several years ago where a lot of student athletes sued the NCAA over the NCAA's restriction on schools being able to compensate student athletes for education-related expenses, as well as for, you know, essentially any compensation. Ultimately, the district court in the Northern District of California up in San Francisco essentially decided that the NCAA, which is a, its members are conferences that got together and violated the antitrust laws by agreeing on these rules, limiting some compensation to student-athletes. But the interesting thing is the court sort of split the baby. It decided that rules limiting compensation on education-related expenses, things like scholarships for graduate or vocational schools, tutoring, and the like, that violated the antitrust laws. But other sort of non-education-related expenses, those rules can be understood as sort of promoting quote-unquote amateurism. And that's what the NCAA offers is amateur collegiate sports. It went up to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the district court opinion and went up to the Supreme Court. Interestingly, the NCAA basically wanted to an overturn and essentially argued that they kind of weren't even subject to the antitrust laws for a variety of reasons. The student-athletes did not seek a review of anything other than affirming the district court opinion, meaning they didn't actually try to ask the Supreme Court to overturn the district court and rule that the non-education related expenses, those limitations are violative of the antitrust laws. They simply sought to affirm the district court opinion. And in an extremely detailed and well-reasoned opinion, the Supreme Court upheld and basically said, that any agreements limiting compensation on education-related expenses violates the antitrust laws and upheld the district court opinion. So that's where they are. Additionally, the, there's a concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh, which is, I'm sure we will get into it, but essentially scathing. And if I were the NCAA, it would certainly have me quaking in my boots a little bit. But that's that's essentially the opinion and where we are now, And it's going to have ramifications.
0: Exactly. Thanks for that overview, Jay. I think it's important to have a good, solid understanding of kind of how we got here, what the court actually said, and the impact this is going to have on sports as we go forward. You know, it's interesting, right? Like, a lot of times when you think about, you know, oral arguments, and the oral arguments for this case were back at the end of March, and, you you know, you try to listen and, and try to determine what the court's going to do based on the questions that they ask you know, it was interesting because it really seemed like the questions they were asking really went after the NCAA. And then, wow, when you see this decision, a unanimous decision to come out against the NCAA in this instance, I think is big. But one of the things that I think is important to understand is the limited scope of this decision, right? And that's that this decision by the court really only gets to the implications on education-related benefits, right? Those benefits of you know, laptops and computers and study abroad programs and internships, all those things that have to do with the benefits that a school can provide to student athletes, that it no longer can be limited, which is interesting, right? We'll talk, you know, a little bit later about the implications of this on schools and, and recruiting and things like that. But but I think it is interesting and important to note, Jay, just this, this limited scope. And, and as you look at this, especially from your perspective on the antitrust side of things, okay, so limited scope, but I think that this limited scope in their decision has a major impact as we look at going forward and the impact that this will have on, you know, the NCAA and those who maybe want to continue to attack the NCAA.
1: Oh, absolutely. You, you got it perfectly. I, I like to think of it as there's sort of three buckets of compensation that the student athletes have always sort of been suing about. One is education-related expenses, and that's the only thing technically the Supreme Court was dealing with and affirmed the district courts finding that any limits on education-related expenses is a violation of the antitrust laws. Then there's the name, image, and likeness, which there's been a lot of publicity about. You know, states are enacting laws that you can't restrict a student athlete's ability to market his or her name, image, or likeness. There's bills in Congress. There's, you know, everything. There's lawsuits about that. And then there's just sort of generally, what about just paying a kid to come to your school? Just like we pay professional athletes to go, you know, I'm a Raiders fan. I think that's pretty well documented. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, just like the Raiders can go get a free agent, can Ohio State go and pay a million bucks for the next Aaron Rodgers to come play for them. So far, the district court, had said no and wasn't challenged at the Supreme Court level, but the tone and tenor of the of the opinion certainly suggests that that may be open to relitigation. And you yeah. know, I mean, you can imagine what would your clients like to be able to market their service across the country to anyone they want? Absolutely. It's just it's mind boggling if you think about it.
0: it. It really is. It really is. And, and so when you when you think about it, it's it's like you know, I, I think. One of the areas that that was really entertaining and interesting to me was Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, right? This concurring opinion. I mean, come on, right? It it seems like to me, and 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 I will tell you, and, and I think most uh most of of my clients know. I don't spend a lot of time reading Supreme Court decisions, right? I think. That's uh, I did enough of that in law school Um, in in my day to day. I don't have to deal with it. But this was one that I just wanted to have my popcorn with me as I'm reading it, because, wow, he really set forth almost a challenge for others to come and take on the NCAA. I mean, am, am I wrong there? Right. I'm just reading one, you know, one aspect. He says, I add this concurring opinion. This is, you know, Justice Kavanaugh speaking. I add this concurring opinion to underscore that the NCAA's remaining compensation rules also raise serious questions under antitrust laws, right? I mean, it It, seems like he's just begging, you know, for the next case.
1: Right. Well, you and I guess some listeners know my background. I started off representing in in a firm that we represented football and basketball players, you know, suing the leagues over, you know, restrictions on free agency and one, and essentially where, you know, the restrictions in football on free agency were deemed to be an antitrust yep. violation and again these issues these are campaigns and you sometimes win bit by bit by bit but i mean kavanaugh's concurrence just sort of brought a tears to my eyes you know <laughs> there's just so much another quote from him the ncaa's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in america he's not talking about just the education related expenses that's right he's talking about anything and he says price fixing labor is price-fixing labor, period. And and to be honest, I think while his opinion is both well, his concurrence is both well-written and sort of very strident, I think all he's really doing is, frankly, giving voice to the undercurrent in the majority opinion. The majority opinion is very circumspect, saying we're we're only going to decide what's before us but I think he's giving voice to what they're basically saying is we get another case on other issues. I don't see how the NCAA is ever going to be able to defend it.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with that. I think um, I, I don't know how they're going to be able to defend it going forward either. I mean, I, you know, we could get into a lot more technical, and if you if you want to hear more of the technical kind of antitrust analysis and the <laughs> scrutiny that's used and all of that, you know, definitely check out Jay's podcast. He'll he'll dig into you know more of the details and 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 whatnot. But I want to maybe take this then a step further to say, so what happens, right? What what happens next, right? So this decision doesn't then say hey, schools, you have to spend more money on student athletes, right, for these education related benefits. But it says, hey, schools, if you want to, you can, because guess what? The NCAA can't limit what you're going to spend on your student athletes. So we could have some of these, whatever, top schools, big, you know, big athletic schools, what have you saying, okay, you know what, we're going to offer top of the line laptops, we're going to have pay student athletes the top rate when it comes to internships, we're going to you know, allow them for study abroad programs that get paid for, for the educational benefit and all that kind of stuff. I think that's what we'll see in terms of the actual day-to-day, right? It's going to impact recruiting. Um, yep. Student athlete most definitely will say, okay, well, you know, what are the benefits to me as they already do, right? What are the benefits to me for going mm-hmm. to this school versus that school? And it takes the totality of decision-making to figure that out, right? Uh, the athletic opportunities, the academic opportunities, the potential uh, educational related benefit opportunities, et cetera. What do you think is next, Jay? I mean, clearly this roadmap has been laid. We kind of understand, okay, this is very limited in scope, very narrow related to education related benefits. But what impact do you see this having more broadly on the NCAA? Where do you see it going? There
1: are some who are going to say this challenges the entire NCAA business model. Right. And, you know, I'm not sure that's Really true. I mean, the majority opinion made it clear that listen, you can still regulate even education-related expenses to make sure they're bona fide education-related expenses. In other words, the the fear that somebody's going to get a Lamborghini out of an internship or or you know you can still police that. I mean, the NCAA, right? But whether it's going to be a, a free for all or not, you know. There's already name, image, and likeness cases. There's going to be other cases brought. But I think what the NCAA is going to end up doing is, first, they're going to pour even more effort into getting some sort of bill through Congress that will regulate it. You know, listen, there's, there's a sports exemption for leagues being able to negotiate television contracts and the like. The NCAA is going to try to get... Some bill through Congress that's going to govern the compensation that student athletes can receive. What that bill will look like, it's unclear. There's already a patchwork of laws in Florida, California, and other places. And I think they're going to put a lot more effort into that. But, you know, they do have to worry that if they can't do it via legislation and if it's only going to be decided throughout the courts. Bit by bit, these bricks may sort of take apart the foundation. Now, if they do that, think about a a world in which any student athlete can go to any school it wants, can get paid whatever it wants to participate in that athletics at that school, mm-hmm. and so be it. And then the NCAA regulates and still sells the product. It still governs it for you know substance abuses and has the like, it doesn't mean the NCAA is out of business. It just means that they can't fix wages.
0: Right, right. No, I think that that's totally spot on. And and that that's one of the things that I'm so glad that the Supreme Court addressed, right? And, you know, just this idea of, you know, that, that somehow by not paying, that people really want to see this product where, you know, student athletes aren't getting paid. And it's just, you know, that that's just not that's just not true in some respects right I, I know that there are some people that are that are big on this this whole idea but that amateurism is is made up because for the love of the game which we could spend a whole other you know episode you know <laughs> getting getting into that and what and what that means you know you talked about Congress and needing to see something through Congress I'm curious your thoughts on this and 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 I'll share kind of my thoughts which is from a name, image, and likeness perspective, we know that there's going to end up being federal legislation. There are, as as Jay mentioned, there are multiple states right now whose state laws on name, image, and likeness will go into effect here on July 1st, and other states that have, you know, progressing timelines over the next couple years. And the uh, Commerce Committee of the Senate here recently has held a, f- a few different hearings as Senator Cantwell from Washington, who's the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, has has had really a lot of conversation in this name, image, and likeness space. And a lot of people think that she, she may be the one that will be able to bring together some type of bipartisan legislation. My question to you, and from an antitrust perspective and from a, a just a broader kind of legal perspective, how far do you think that legislation needs to go to allow for the NCAA to continue to operate in the way, not necessarily in the way which it has, but in a way that is... Meaningful, right? That they still exist. Let's say, and and then also gives student athletes the rights that they need to be able, or that they want to be able to go and and do what you know. So often, their non-student athlete counterparts in college campuses have been able to do for years. Kind of, where do we need to strike that balance? Come on, we want you to figure this whole thing out. What's up? Yeah, exactly. Well, I may not be the best person to to
1: talk about this because I am so I I'm, I started my legal career on behalf of of athletes and. To be honest, and you know, my heart is still with them. I'm not entirely sure the NCAA needs any protections because, I mean, think about it. What if they ended up, you know, becoming the NFL or the NBA? That's not wrong. That's not. It's different, but it doesn't mean the NCAA doesn't have a right to exist or doesn't have a place. It just means that it doesn't necessarily have to govern issues dealing with you know, what money goes to the student athlete, whether it be education related, whether it be non-education related, whether it be name, image and likeness related. You know, that said, you're right. This concept of amateurism that, you know, people want to see amateurs. I think we sort of debunked that. Remember the Olympics to play, you know, to play in the Olympics, you had to be non-paid and then sort of, well, that went by the wayside, <laughs> you know, the dream team, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We 1992, never, 92, yeah.
1: All these guys are pretty well compensated. Yep. Um, they were professionals. So having professionals compete in what is otherwise a traditional amateur arena um, doesn't seem to harm the sport at all. The Olympics are as popular as ever. Maybe it got a little bit boring after the dream team, but just that's because of a talent issue. So I don't think the NCAA needs anything. That said, there may be enough enough demand on that side where I think Congress can give the NCAA some moderate policing functions in regards to compensation because, you know, I think Kavanaugh points this out, just like every league comes out and says, we need restrictions because of competitive balance, right? Mm-hmm. We don't want the New York Yankees of the world and we don't want the Dallas Cowboys of the world Who are the richest teams to be able to just buy up all the talent. And (laughs) so we have these collective bargaining agreements and the like. Well, it's entirely possible that a congressional framework would sort of allow for somebody to negotiate for maybe student athletes and maybe provide for salary cap type things and the like. There could be a regulatory framework that allows for at least division one, division two, division three to be on the same competitive level without having the Ohio States or the Notre Dames of the world just u- uber dominating. But my preference is let the market dictate. Let's see how this plays out. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know what happens when there's an entrenched you know, uh, institution? I, I just don't see the NCAA giving up yet.
0: That's right. They're, I don't see them giving up either. Um, and I will say this as a uh, diehard Eagles fan: I agree. We don't want the Dallas Cowboys of the world to be able to have a monopoly on everything. But but I will I will say though, you know, and in, in Kavanaugh, I think uh, again, Justice Kavanaugh hits this right on the head. Your point earlier about the traditions of sports and and what makes the NCAA unique, and he says, you know, to be sure. The NCAA and its member colleges maintain important traditions that have become part of the fabric of America. Game days in Tuscaloosa and South Bend, (coughs) packed gyms and stores in Durham, men's and women's lacrosse championships on Memorial Day weekend, track and field meets in Eugene, the spring softball and baseball World Series in Oklahoma City and Omaha, the list goes on. But those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student-athletes who are not fairly compensated. And I think that right there just really kind of, you know, puts things into perspective that I think a lot of people would agree with. I think that we can find a way to balance the rights uh, and opportunities of student athletes along with the traditions of what people have come to love about college sports. And I don't think that what people have loved about college sports has anything to do with the athletes and whether they get paid or not. Athletes are going to compete for their opportunities and to be able to again, maximize their opportunity and experience. And, and, and I'll say this, this NCAA versus Austin case specifically, again, as we mentioned earlier, it, it's very limited, very narrow, and deals with education-related benefits. Name, image, and likeness, while not dealt with directly in this case, name, image, and likeness deals with a student athlete being able to contract with a third party to license their name, image, and likeness and be compensated for it. In neither of those scenarios are we talking about schools paying their student-athletes, right? What we're what? what we're talking about is a school being able to offer things from an academic and education-related perspective and provide opportunities, because guess what? Not all student-athletes come from the same place. Not all student-athletes go to college with a laptop or go to college with the things that they need to be successful, you know, outside of their sport and in the classroom, the student side of student-athlete. And from a name, image, and likeness perspective, we're really just talking about student-athletes who have this ability to have followers on social media or the ability to teach or train someone through a camp and a clinic to be able to go out and partner with a company to say, hey, I want to help promote your brand and make money off of that. In none of those scenarios, does it take money away from the institutions themselves and put it in the pockets of the players directly? So I think Congress will strike a balance. It'll be interesting to see what that all looks like and the protections that they do if any, continue to afford the NCAA. But I think there's so much more to come, and this decision by the Supreme Court sets up um, some other potential challenges here in the future that'll be really fascinating to see.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no dispute that a lot of these rules affect different constituencies and different communities disproportionately. And you're absolutely right. Education-related benefits are very narrow, and I'm not exactly sure that it's going to affect a lot, you know, whether I'm going to get a, a scholarship to grad school or to you know law school or dental school is going to affect my decision of where I'm going to play that much. And we got to remember, the vast majority of student athletes do not go on to professional sports. That's right. That's right. I mean, that is it, it is just you know the cream of the of the of the cream of the cream of the crop uh, get to play. So for the vast majority of student athletes. Getting that education is entirely their focus and the athletics part is a means because they may not otherwise have the ability to pay for that uh, and the like. But, you know, if you think about it, just because something has been an institution doesn't mean it's right. I mean, otherwise we have no progress
0: in this country. Absolutely right, and we could we could look at a lot of institutions that have affected society over time and but we evolve and and we and we move on I, th- I think you're spot on you know jay any any last thoughts um, you know as we kind of you know wrap up this conversation obviously more conversations will be had, but any last thoughts on things that you've taken from the court's decision here or as you look at kind of just the industry this you know this college sports industry and the changes that are coming um, any last thoughts for uh, for our listeners?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the takeaway clearly is that you can't simply support restraints that would otherwise be illegal with sort of uh, claims that we need the product because the product itself is defined by the illegal nature uh, of what we want to do. That's just not going to fly. And at the same time, you know, the Supreme Court, they keep saying that if you you pay athletes, it's going to kill. But as the Supreme Court noticed and noted... That, you know, these these compensation rules have been ever so slightly loosened over the years, and yet consumer demand and the, and the desire for collegiate sports has just continued to rocketed. So there's no reason we need any of these in order to protect the product itself. You're absolutely right. We don't love collegiate sports because they're not getting paid. We love collegiate sports because of the youth, the enthusiasm. That's right. The, you know, the connection to my alma mater, the, you know, we relive our lives through these kids. We remember when we were those, you know, athlete warriors, although never good enough to play D1, but, you know, (laughs) be that as it may, I mean, I, that's, and that's what makes it, March Madness is wonderful because of just the youth and enthusiasm, not because they're not getting paid. And I think this decision sort of says that fairly starkly and, I look forward to student athletes getting their, you know, fair share in the future.
0: I agree wholeheartedly with you and I think, you know, when we look at this and we if we take, you know, even a step back and look at the last 10, 11, you know, 12 years and see the impact and and the changes that we're starting to see chip away at this institution that has really controlled so many, I mean, hundreds of thousands, millions of student athletes. Um, over the years. And now for student-athletes to start being empowered, to start having opportunities for equity in this, and not, you know, this whole idea of student-athletes just, you know, making a windfall just for for being a student-athlete at a school, but for having the opportunity, the having the opportunity to be able to start a business and earn compensation, to receive education-related benefits, you know, when they enter a school. To me, I think that this is the start of, or rather the continuation of what we've seen recently in terms of player empowerment and student athletes, you know, finally getting some acknowledgement of, as they are literally the backbone of what has created this multi-billion dollar college sports industry. I'm excited to see these changes continue to come forward. And think about it. If they can get paid, maybe they'll stay in school a little bit longer. You know, great point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and not only see now so okay, so we were about to end it but we're going to keep going for a second because not only <laughs> might they stay in school a little bit longer, but the academic education takes on a different meaning when student athletes have the ability to apply the learning in the classroom directly yes. to what they're dealing with on a daily basis. So what I tell student athletes when I'm talking to them too is think about what classes do you have offered at in, in your college on digital storytelling, on marketing, on entrepreneurial finance, on starting a business, right? I mean, the list goes on and on, and if schools were smart about this, they would start taking across disciplines the courses that could impact student athletes who are engaging in name, image, and likeness, or who have the opportunities that they want to, you know, seek how they can earn compensation, and say, hey, here's a curriculum, here are classes that you can take across these different areas, that will help you. And so to Jay's point, yes, that may help help them may desire to stay in school longer because they can continue to earn compensation and when they and they know that they're part of the 98% that aren't going to go on to professional sports, but now also I can take classes that I actually care about because I can apply the things I'm learning directly to what I'm right. doing. And when I think about social media marketing and influencing and all that kind of stuff, it has real world practical implications. And I did a podcast episode on the ethical imperative of educating our student athletes. And I just, you got me ready to jump up on this desk, Jay, because this is what it's all about. And let's look at it from the perspective of what are we doing to prepare and equip our student athletes for success, not just within their sport, but outside of their sport as well. And think about how good college
1: sports will be when you have you know people who don't feel that they have to leave school after the first year to cash in on the, on their talent. If they stay there 3 or 4 years, how good will that product be? How good will the pros be when they've got all of that seasoning in there? How good will it be when they've come out with a degree, when they've taken as you said, all of these classes that mean something to them? Economics, management, data analytics and and all the like and they've gotten the they've been able to foster relationships. You know, for three or four years in school, among their peers, with their professors. I mean, you know, the universities can become partners with them. Yeah. And, and it, it can just be they are now more invested in the system and the system itself can become so much better. And I just I, I just think we, we can't discount the the benefits of of having kids stay in school longer and reaping the benefits of
0: their own talent and you know, and hard work. Absolutely. Jay is now cl- climbing off of his desk. Uh, we both <laughs> have calmed down a little bit. Uh, but you, as you can see, this is a topic we could talk about um, at length. And I know that, Jay, that we'll be getting together again and, and talking about this and other issues affecting college sports and the business side of sports. So he's Jay Levine. He leads the uh, antitrust law source um, antitrust podcast uh, for Porter Wright. I'm Luke Fedlum, uh the host of the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. And again, we just want to say thank you for tuning in and look forward to talking to you all again real soon. Thank you. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. The content of this publication is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the firm as to any particular matter or those of its clients. Please consult an attorney for specific advice regarding your particular situation.